You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. From WALT, you're listening to Fisher Family Ghosts. A companion podcast to the show Six Feet Under. I'm Sam Dingman. I'm Adrian Bain. All right, fish heads. I thought we said we weren't going to call them that. Really trying to make fish heads happen. I, we really shouldn't. Adrian's not a fan of fish heads. You, however, the fish heads. Stop. It is your. Stop. It is yours to decide. You can write in the, your emails on whether or not you want to be called fish heads. I'm so glad you mentioned emails, Adrian mm-hmm. Bain, because we are going to begin the show today by sharing an email from. Our most valuable listener. Oh, my God. Currently occupying that spot. Perhaps it could be yours. It could be. If you, too, send an email of the caliber of this one. Yep. Which comes to us from Tracy. Tracy. Oh, my God. Hello, Tracy. We read this on, like, a Saturday morning, and it warmed us. It did. It was so good. It did. Sam, do you want to read it? I do. Um, Tracy, we appreciate you very much. Tracy reached us as... Any of you can also by writing to ffg at walt.fm. Here is what Tracy had to say. Little did you know, I am now the third host from behind the scenes. Oh, my God. I felt like there was a presence here the whole time, like (laughs) someone was watching. Continue. These comments, I should say, are in response to the episode The Room, which is a couple episodes back. Mm -hmm. But everybody remembers The Room. That's the one where Nate Jr. discovers Nathaniel Sr.'s secret room. Quoting me, she says, Sam, it was an episode where they were just longing for... And then Tracy says, she shouted, connection. And then I said, connection. Which is to say, we are simpatico, Tracy and I. There was an echo in the room. Number two. Adrian, not knowing immediately, Mr. Jones and me really validated the age difference between the two of you again. (laughs) Now, this is uh, a bit of a subplot here on the program. Adrian and I are of different ages. Not that. I I feel like it's on the line. It's... It's not 10 years. It's not 10 years. It's not 10 years. Not that there's anything wrong with that. If anybody out there is rocking a little May-December... (laughs) <laughs> yes. So, Sam is a tad bit older than me. Just a whisper. A whisper. Just to say it, we're eight years apart. I am 38. Adrian is 30. Mm-hmm. That's not that weird. No. It's only when I'm making fun of you about it do I, like, notice it. Number three, Tracy continues on the Counting Crows tip. Counting Crows, worst band ever to see live. We walked out. She says, that breaks my heart more than any frame of film in the television show Six Feet Under. I love the Counting Crows so much. And it is a bummer to hear that they do not deliver on their uh, melodic promise in a live environment. However, number four, Tracy says, my boyfriend, lovingly known as, quote, the hippie, all caps, huge fish head. <laughs> that tracks. 
If his nickname is The Hippie, I'm yes. not surprised. Yes, he's uh, he's doing that correctly. Yeah. Um, and obviously, in calling everybody out there in listener land a fish head, I am making a reference to the fact that the show is about the Fisher family, but it's also funny because Adrian hates that I... I'm just rolling my eyes this secretly, time. Not so secretly. Enjoy the band Fish. Number five, Adrian says, Nate is literally reading Brenda like a book. Tracy says in all caps, perfect. Absolutely perfect. Ugh, thanks, Tracy. I agree with I'm you. I'm so worth of affirmation. Thank you. <laughs> Tracy, I agree with you in that sentiment in both appropriate oh, and inappropriate I'm... ways. Ugh. But um, trying to get into less of that on the podcast based on some feedback. <laughs> <laughs> so I will instead say, uh, oh, remind all of you that that is a reference to when Nate is reading Charlotte Light and Dark. That was when Adrian said her very insightful thing. Tracy adds, I think Brenda is so used to having her walls up as long as she plays her badass role, she knows people will leave and not stick around. Nate has not left, but is even more intrigued by her, therefore letting her guard down, if just a bit. I think that is a very astute reading, yeah, as it were, on Tracy's part. I feel like Brenda isn't so much a wall, but like, like she's a window shade where she's like, I'm going to peek it up and like, maybe I'll let the light in or sometimes I'm going to keep it super closed. But like, she has a real control on that dial. Mm, she is, uh, she's got a set of Venetian blinds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Sometimes she lets all the light shine, sometimes just a little sliver. Yeah. Number six on Tracy's list, she says she's blown away by a lot of love for Adrian in this email. Oh, Tracy, let's all of hang it out. Uh, blown away by Adrian's observation of Brenda as a child, the inception observation. Oh, this is a reference to also Charlotte Light and Dark. Yeah. Do you remember what this was? Yeah, so it's like that one takeaway where it's the little girl and like the psychologist taking notes. And we were talking about whose perspective is that from? And what did I say? I think I said it was Nate's perspective of what the psychologist, of how the psychologist was looking at Brenda. So it's yes. Nate. Then the psychologist looking at Brenda. And so that is an Inception moment. Also, it, we should totally watch Inception. Keep going. It was double intermediated. Double sept. Yeah, double, double sept. <laughs> Two layers deep. Our new segment on the podcast, double, double sept. sept. We need to get an air horn for those moments. Bow, bow, bow. Double sept, double sept. <laughs> Number seven, cherubs and clock. Although I would agree with the time lapse, I think it is also a direct reflection of Mr. and Mrs. Jones. Obviously, cherubs represent love. I completely missed that. Yeah. But I that think Tracy's good. spot on. I thought Tracy was spot on. And everyone runs out of time. Yeah. I It didn't occur to me to identify Mr. and Mrs. Jones with, literally with the cherubs themselves. Yeah. But I think it's so, I mean, she's completely right. In addition to the cherubs representing love, they're physically entwined with each other yeah. in the sculpture that that really is my favorite episode of the whole series i think the room eight on tracy's list ruth's pictures i think it is a reminder to us that she hasn't always been this awkward (sighs) christian prude she was fun and vibrant and beautiful and that's when nathaniel fell in love with and that's what nathaniel fell in love with about her Mm -hmm. but then she had a husband and children and life happened 
turning into almost a robot-like persona of day-in, day-out, housewife, mom duties, losing that part of herself. Tracy continues, adding on to that theory, Mr. Fisher is able to be that young, vibrant personality that he once had and still has. He just can't be that anymore with Ruth because she has obviously matured past that. That, I think, is an interesting point, that they got together Mm -hmm. when they were very young and then grew into different people. Totally. This is a thing that happens. I think that happens to a lot of couples, especially if you have kids. You kind of like let the kids get in the way, take the focal point, but then you kind of forget to – I think you take your relationship for granted. May I make a rather large generalization? Sure, go for it. This is a small room, though. (laughs) Okay, here's the take. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that what accounts for an astonishingly high number of divorces amongst people, say, a generation, two generations above ours, is the fact that in a lot of cases, people got married when they were very young. And so instead of growing apart and just breaking up, they had to get divorced instead. Yeah. It's not that there was some fundamental issue with the institution of marriage and commitment. They just didn't know who they were yet. It's that they got married before they knew who they were. Yeah. Everybody calm down with the anti-marriage rhetoric. Do you know the other? There's there's one psychologist who says he has a 99% like accuracy rate on whether or not a couple stays together. This is in a heteronormative sense but i think that it i think it can be generalized to all relationships is he believes a couple will stay together if the woman feels like she is being heard i'm sorry what did you say (laughs) get out out with you but give me the cookies That's a much hotter take than mine. I think that makes sense because once divorce became socially acceptable and women were like, yo, I have an out. Like if they don't feel like they are an equal Mm -hmm. or at least being heard and their feelings validated, then they're like, give me the fuck out. I don't want to be like, I don't want to be here if this isn't going to happen. You know? Yeah. Well, and I think it took some time for us to reach a point where there was enough of a cultural dialogue around the fact that in a heteronormative sense, husband and wives should be equal partners and both be heard. And Yeah, exactly. That there is not a hierarchy in that dynamic Yeah, in an ideal world. I am definitely the dom in our relationship, though. <laughs> no, I think that, that it should just go for... Any relationship, regardless of gender, is like, do both people hear each other? And do they respect what they hear? Yes, absolutely. You know? That is one of those deceptively simple but deeply wise ideas. If you just listen to each other, then it doesn't mean you're always going to agree about things, but you're never going to feel blindsided in a way that creates discord yeah sorry wait what did you just say <laughs> I kind of as that. you can see adrian and i have some work to do <laughs> but in the meantime we're going to watch episode 10, ten, 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 ten. of season one, 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 one. 
We have a selective echo here in the studio. Sorry, yeah, I don't know where that's coming from. <laughs> Only numbers reverberate. <laughs> it's a weird little glitch that this room has. See you on the other side. I don't know why I didn't just tell you. It's totally unlike me. I usually just say whatever I'm thinking. I noticed. But I saw that broken glass, and I just was overcome with this feeling that it was better to just ignore it, just pretend that it didn't happen. I get that feeling from all of you here. Everyone is so fragile and can't bear to hear anything. Okay, unofficial subtitle for that episode, Hurricane Angela. Hurricane Angela. Oh my God, so much drama happened. Like not so much existential stuff, but just like a lot of drama and a lot of politics. Oh yes, oh yes. Oh my God. Um... I don't even know where to start. Let's start. Let's start with Angela. Well, hold on. Where do you want to start? I want to start at the beginning because I want to preserve our tradition of oh yes talking about what the connection between the I- death at the beginning and the rest of the episode is because in this episode it feels maybe the flimsiest of all of them. What? No, I totally disagree. Tell me everything. Okay, so the beginning is like this woman kills her husband. With a frying pan, a little bit of a cliche, but... It is six feet under. It is six feet under, and she knocks him over the head, and she just, like, continues about her day, eats her food, is like, whatever. And I think so many things were literally knocked over, or, like, knocked over the set, like, kind of, like, smacked you in the head a little bit. Like, a lot of, like, big hits were made in this one, is what I'm saying. Mm. I think Angela, I think Billy, I think Claire... A lot of big hits. You know, I hadn't thought about that. The boring part, I'm not so sure about. That's what, see, that's interesting. I thought the whole purpose of that scene was the the idea of, am I boring? Like, Mm. because immediately after that, we see David and Nate saying to themselves, like, oof, I'm a little bit boring sometimes, too. Yeah. But then they go in very different directions in the episode. Yeah. David tries to spice things up in a major way, tries to get back together with Keith yeah. and tries to get really like aggressive with him, that, right. have meaningless sex, which he knows Keith isn't going to be into, but he still yeah. tries anyway. Yeah, I try that, to do that with you all the time. I'm like, just don't have any feelings. must have emotion. <laughs> you know, you cry after every time. Yes. <laughs> I weep. For joy. <laughs> um, Whereas Nate, I feel like, mm-hmm. really goes inward and, and gets very self-aware mm-hmm. in this episode. He has that real heart-to-heart with Claire about, oh, I, I think you're really that. upset about our dad. And then he goes to Brenda and is apologetic about his reaction to the Billy stuff and says, how can I, I just want to listen to how yeah. you're feeling. 
So I took that, both of those things as like emanating from the boringness idea. Oh, interesting. But say more about things getting knocked over in this episode. So I guess we could start with Angela, the new hire, who from what we see has like a lovely, very professional interview. And then like the moment she gets underground, she's like whale tailing, tits out, talks about sex all the time. And part of me was like, this is my gal. Like I love her, but I could see the Fishers like really not enjoying her presence. And and Nate even tries. Nate tries. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nate's going to give even... everybody a chance. But she even wears on him a little bit. Yeah. But it was interesting because I, like, thought... I thought the goblet thing was a little off because at first I thought that they were... When Ruth accuses both of the sons, like, who broke my goblet, I thought they were like, oh, it was Angela, as in, like, a way to get Ruth against Angela. But then it turns out that she actually did. It just came off as a lie. And I just thought, like, script-wise, that would that was kind of weird. Like, I just thought that was a little loose. Like, you would have preferred to actually know what had happened yeah. when she said that. But I do love how that broken glass really cracked open so much in Angela. And I think Angela was just a general foil for the Fishers because... She's right. They are super uptight. And she says, I've never been more depressed in a funeral home before, which I'm like, I am <laughs> like, I think that's so interesting on like how we naturally absorb like the greater energy of a space in that she was like, I always say the first thing off the top of my head, but my instinct here was to just ignore it. And that's what you guys seem to all do with each other. Like she has them written out. So fast, you know? She is, in a way, she's kind of like Bizarro Nate. Oh, that's interesting. Where she's like, she's very perceptive. She picks up on everything. But she also just doesn't hide anything, you know? I think it, it, she has like a, a, even like a heightened version of Nate's ability to perceive. Yeah. Because, I mean, actually, to go back to Tracy's email from the top of the show. Love you, Tracy. Thanks again for writing. Mm-hmm. She says exactly what Tracy posited is going on with Brenda. Mm -hmm. Nate says, every time I try to get close to her, she pulls away. Right. And Angela, who's never met Brenda, has just heard like a snippet of conversation, totally pegs exactly what um, Tracy said. And she's even better at seeing that than Nate is. But what she lacks is Nate's ability to connect. And I think she lacks the delicacy that a lot of these things need to be hand- like need to be handled with like i think the whole fisher family is a little bit like handle with care and mm-hmm. angela is like oh i frequently break china <laughs> literally she actually did yes. you know she's a bit of a bull in a china shop yeah so but i thought she was a really great i also think within the season this was a really good time to create a character mm-hmm. because we know the Fishers well enough to be like, Angel's got their fucking number. Mm-hmm. You know, like we like the Fishers for certain reasons, mm-hmm. but we also know that like, it's interesting because I was thinking about this. There's some TV shows where I'm like, oh my God, I love that character. And like, I think about them as if they're my friend. Also because I'm in quarantine, I can't see my real friends. Mm-hmm. But uh, so that is 
heightened. But I don't feel that at all with anyone in the Six Feet Undercast. I don't feel like, oh, warm, cozy feel. I don't feel that at all, which is interesting. And I think that's because, like, there's even as a TV show, they are hard to connect with. You're right. This was an episode where we got to see, we've been seeing the Fishers through our eyes, which are attempting to bring us around and make us feel closer to the Fishers. And this was an episode where we see them through the eyes of somebody who's like, this is a mess. Yeah, And yeah, I yeah. can't stay quiet about it. Yes, I totally agree with that. So I thought Angela was fascinating. I thought she was hilarious. But, like, I would get a drink with her and then, like, harass men at a bar for the sake of harassing people (laughs) and then, like, go home, you know? Well, I think it's also interesting that you pegged this as an episode about breaking the glass and how the fissures are so fragile because I love the scene that we get in the gallery where Brenda's mom meets Ruth and we see two opposing versions of motherhood. Yes. One where there is an attempt at all times to maintain boundaries and propriety, in the case of Ruth, obviously, and one in the case of Margaret, who knows no boundaries. Ironically, given that she's a fucking psychologist. But something else that I loved about this episode is that we find out at the end, we're jumping around in the plot a lot this week, trying to keep up. She reveals that in she had a moment, she and Byrne had a moment of weakness also where mm. they didn't know what to do with Billy. They had him committed and then they lied to Brenda about it just to try to protect her. That I don't think was a psychologist move. That, that was wasn't definitely a, a parent move. That was just a we don't know what the right thing to do here is. Like we were trying to protect, which is what Ruth, as we talked about either last episode or the one before, she's always trying to protect rather than connect. For Margaret, I feel like she is trying to connect always, but she's, she has not protected her children. Oh my God, they are opposite of each other. I'm really realizing this now because she just like basically gave, um, Brenda to the wolves of this like psychotherapist whatever and can't control her son and protect him in a way that's like meaningful and compassionate but she is always trying to like I'm a cool mom you know I mean I think in a way they are opposites but in in this fundamental way they are sort of the same go deeper well I don't know if I'm equipped to but I think just in the, I just mean that in the sense, that was one of those things where I said a declarative thing and then was like, can you back this up? I don't know if you can. Um, I guess I just mean in the sense that their parental instincts are both born of a misguided attempt to protect their children. Like, I guess we haven't heard about why Brenda's parents submitted her for study to Dr. Feinberg. Mm-hmm. But it does seem at least plausible that it wasn't because they wanted to turn her into some kind of psychological show pony, as much as it may have seemed like that to Billy and to Brenda, but rather because they perceived that she was incredibly bright and precocious 
And actually, this is like a mom heavy one because then we also deal with Claire, who deals with Gabe's mom, who is checked out. Yes. She's gone. She's like, fuck this. I wounded. I am so wrecked by the death of my son. And another thing that like kind of gets hit on the top of the head is Claire and Gabe seem to be having this like really tender reconnection. He apologizes to her and then he just leaves. Well, so your concern in that moment was I think that Gabe may have taken his life. Yeah. That's interesting to me in the context of this episode because Brenda has just found out that she was misdirected. Yeah. About a possible suicide. Yeah. So Six Feet Under doing what it often does and eliding the stories of characters in yeah. surprising ways. Yeah. That once they happen seem It's a good call. Kind of destined to have happened that way. I want to ask you kind of a weird question. Go for it. I'm here for it. There was a line in the gallery scene. Mm-hmm. where Billy says to Margaret, nothing is more tedious than when you look for meaning in my work. Yeah. And I was struck by two things, I guess. As he said that one, we sit here every week and relentlessly scour every yep. frame of this show for, yeah. for larger meaning. And I wonder what the critical response at this time was and if maybe more was getting read into it than they, than they intended or something like that. But my second question is, how do you feel when people either look for or find meaning in your work that you didn't intend to put there? Like, um, I guess, do you resonate with that statement? It's tedious when people look for meaning. No, I love it. But also, you and I are cut from the same cloth in that, in that sense. I think Billy doesn't even understand his own creative process. I think he's like, I just follow people around and I take provocative shit because like, honestly, provocative is easy. I don't think that it's like, and maybe that's what it is, is he's like, all of this is kind of meaningless. And that's a very big fuck you to his parents who are also trying to apply meaning in everybody's like, you know, breath. So... That's interesting. So you think his goal in his work is to make things that will prompt his parents to presume that there is a deeper meaning and actually all he's trying to do is misdirect them, not to overuse that I don't verb. even think it's intentional. I don't think it, it has that mm. much intention. I think that he's just like, I need to express myself. I have found a camera and I am doing provocative things with that camera. It doesn't like... I think the camera is also a really good vessel for Billy because it's not like stationary, like as writers, as painters, as sculptors, as so many other art forms, you have to be very still for it. And that's not what Billy is. He's always moving. Mm -hmm. So I think that him being a photographer makes a lot of sense. I think that's good character writing is like this character would totally do that. But I think that he just, there is this impishness in him that... I think he perceives this playful and other people perceive it as exposing and like not always consenting. And I think that what didn't get said, I it was very infuriating on how Nate is 
totally okay to be upset that someone took a photo of him when he's in a very vulnerable position. But I think that that's just what, I don't think that there's a method to, ugh, I'm sorry, I don't think there's a method to Billy's madness. And I, I don't want to belittle the fact that he does, that he is bipolar. Yeah, right. You're not saying madness in I'm the sense of being that, bipolar. Yeah. I mean, his erratic. I'm just quoting Shakespeare. Yes. Well, I that what you just said prompted several thoughts for me. One is, in the sense of Billy's work and the possible intention behind it, I hadn't thought about this until you just said those things, but the exhibit, I believe, is called Public-Private. And How did you see that? I think it was on the wall in the background of one of the scenes. Mm. We'll have to double check that. But um, I had this thought just now that possibly what Billy is up to is he's clearly, we learn in this episode, so angry about what happened to Brenda. He's furious about it. And he feels like he wishes he could avenge it somehow. And I think a lot of what he feels angry about on her behalf, whether or not she asked him to act out on this or welcomes the fact that he does, is that her private life was taken away. Oof. And so he maybe in some ways is consciously or otherwise responding by taking away the private lives of his photographic subjects. Oof. The other thing that what you were just saying prompted me to think about is I feel like this episode more than any other one so far made me think about how difficult it is, how difficult a position Brenda is in when it comes to Billy. Oh yeah. And I think it was two episodes ago, maybe one episode ago, we were talking about, it's the episode where Nate gets high and he gets really paranoid. Yeah. And And Billy's saying like a lot of fucked up shit about Yeah, Billy's saying all kinds of weird stuff. And I said something about how Brenda in this one scene with Billy, the scene where Billy's saying the fucked up stuff about death traditions and other cultures, she looks at Billy approvingly right, and kind of eggs him on and saying more of this and then turns to Nate and says like, well, thanks for that encyclopedia entry or whatever she says. Yeah, She really tries to play both sides of it. I know. And in the moment I took that as like, Brenda, don't do that. That's so duplicitous. Yeah. Except that in this episode, I felt like it really came through. That's the position that she's been put in her whole life. Totally. She is Billy's only defender. And at the same time, she feels very intruded upon by his behavior. And I thought about this in the scene where that you were describing, where she says, Ugh, Nate, you're personalizing this. You know, you're making this about you. Stop making this about you. She's really defending Billy. And then there's another scene, and then we come back, and then it's Billy basically in the same chair that Nate was sitting in in Brenda's house. And she's saying, like, Billy, stop fucking with my life. And then I felt it again in the scene where Billy's fixing the sink. Mm -hmm. And which I think that is an interesting image. He's like, oh, these pipes are clogged. And it's like nobody's... Been able, it's like this same stuff's been floating around in here since the 80s. Yeah. Which, I don't know, could be a reference to like unresolved issues from hmm. I'm reaching. I just pulled a muscle. I reached so hard in that moment. <laughs> um, but after that, 
they're sitting next to the sink and Brenda looks at Billy and says like, I need to know if you're okay. Yeah. And she's not playing any games. She's just so worried about him. And you can see terrified that something terrible might be about to happen to him, like getting yeah. packaged off to this place where we're going to do electroshock therapy. And she's just stuck. And I hadn't thought about that until this episode. And she doesn't get any help. No, because she's, yeah, she's protecting Billy from their own his own parents. Their own parents. Like, they're kind of their own dual defenders. Because I feel like Billy throwing everything in the pool and destroying the office was kind of his, like, latent response to being like, I didn't get to protect my sister mm-hmm. when I should have protected my sister. Yeah. And now I see the repercussions of not protecting her. So yeah. I think that they're both kind of, like, born into this world that they did not choose not like any of us do but really did not want to be part of this like strange experiment the whole time and have had to just like only rely on each other but unfortunately like i think it's it's uneven because billy still needs help and brenda is like i'm a pretty functioning person you know some intimacy issues, but obviously not nearly as bad as Billy. So now it feels very uneven. But Brenda knows that, you know, that's kind of her, her burden. Yeah. Brenda's burden is Billy. Second alternate title for the episode. Yeah. After Hurricane Angela. Yeah. Um, Brenda loves Nate. She says it. She says it. Not to him, though. Not he says him. it to her. She still won't say it back. She still won't say it back. Intimacy mm-hmm. issues. That's a real, she really puts the miss in intimacy. Mm-hmm. I'll workshop that one. I'll come back to it yeah, in a couple yeah, yeah. weeks. You keep going. But I think by the end of the show, I'll have come up with something there. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. This is very light and fluffy observation. We don't have to spend too much time on it, but I think it's fun. Ready? Yeah. Here we go. Okay. I feel like there is a trope in movies and TV shows where, okay, so I'm thinking of the scene where Ruth says to Nikolai, would you like to go out to dinner sometime? And Nikolai says, I'll pick you up tomorrow at eight. And Ruth's like, great. That's such a trope in movies and TV shows that somebody's like, do you want to go out sometime? And somebody's like, here is a time and I'll be there at this time as though nobody's ever had a conflicting plan. Right. It And it feels like, I mean. Or sometimes like, they're like, great, we'll do it at eight. And like, no location is set. Right. Yeah. And it's like, I'll just be there at your house and, and pick you up. We won't meet there. That's not how people actually meet up for things. And I don't think that's a 2021 thing. I, I don't remember meet. I mean, I was of an age when you would go out and meet up with people in 2001 when this came out. You made a, you made a plan. These choices were made from narrative expediency, uh, I, and I won't stand for it. I think this one shows our age difference. <laughs> All right, fine. I want to flag something that you said you wanted to talk about, mm-hmm. which is Claire's heartbreak. Okay, so Claire's heartbreak. So Claire gets an apology. She gets like a pretty heartfelt apology, and it made me think back to... All of the times that, uh, I guess there's a few unresolved ones. But, like, for the for the most part, all of the times that, like, I've been treated very poorly by a partner. And 
maybe it took him years, but they eventually apologized. And I'm just curious if we think we always, if do we always get that apology? Like in hindsight, you Adrian, know? this is a deep question. I know. And I love it. I think there's one that I, I haven't really gotten yet from someone. Okay. I'm looking right at him. If you're... <laughs> I'm just kidding. I am sorry I left the bathroom cabinet open. <laughs> that, I'm... <laughs> um, well, if this jabroni is listening, send us an email at ffgwnlt.fm <laughs> and apologize, you clown. <laughs> but do you think that you've always gotten the apology that you deserve? Honestly, when you said that, I thought to myself about the most significant wounds or betrayals that I think I've experienced in my life. <laughs> Just you wait. <laughs> <laughs> so far, so far. <laughs> I'm, I'm taking applications for new, another one. Oh, great. Um, I failed out four. <laughs> <laughs> the mailbox is full and not accepting new messages. Um, and I, I would never have taken a second to ponder this, but when I think about two former partners and one other person in my family who I really, really, really felt betrayed by, I did after periods of years and lots of pain get apologies from them. So I think I'm fortunate in that. But I think, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, the question you're also asking is, should we wait around for those apologies? Well, that's a good question. And I will say that in all of those cases, no, in two of those cases, the apologies didn't come until I felt like I had integrated that heartbreak into my larger life and found a way to be less fixated on it. Like, I got the resolution once I reached a point where I felt like I didn't need it anymore. Yeah. I feel like that kind of always happens. And I feel like that kind of happened with Claire. Like, I feel like at this moment, are you okay? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. You, you sounded a little... No, I just hadn't... Wobbly. I just hadn't thought about... I just would never have thought about it until you asked that question. And I guess I really did. Mm -hmm. I think that Claire had moved on and put that behind her and then she got the apology i feel like that's kind of the secret to getting it but then everything opened up back up again mm -hmm. yeah well i mean it's interesting again i i wouldn't have put this together if you hadn't asked this very provocative question but i sort of think claire had integrated this trauma with gabe and yeah. found a way to move forward and then when he apologized for it, it's like it drew her closer to him. Totally. And I think fed her sense of what she's expressing with Nate in that scene in the laundry room where she just like, or, or the TV room, wherever they are, where she just wants him yeah. so much because she finally feels needed and respected enough to be apologized to Yeah. in that way. I'm also, yeah, let's talk about the laundry scene because I, it, it just reminded me of like, she was like, is something wrong with me? 
And mm. I just also remember being 18 and being so, so infatuated. It's like a high. And what's happening is when we are teenagers, we have an influx of hormones. So we're getting like adult level hormones in a teenage size body and brain. And our brains aren't like fully developed until we're like 26. So everything just feels so, you know, like you've, you're just writhing with feelings the whole time. And I just... Would you say that to quote a line from the first episode, it makes everything burn a little brighter? It, every, it makes everything burn real bright. And I just really related with Claire with that feeling of like, this is fucking torture because the joy is like this, un, it's this, it's like taking ecstasy, but the pain hurts just like with the same amount of intensity. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, honey. Cause I feel like I've definitely gone through heartbreak in my adult life, but it's never felt as just like earth shattering as when you're a teenager. What do you think accounts for that? Because I just had this thought, and I want to see if you agree with it, literally in the moment of you saying that, that I agree. I feel like it's much easier to absorb heartbreak as an adult. doesn't mean it doesn't still hurt. Oh, it still hurts. But when you're a teenager, it just feels like a catastrophe, like the, the walls are melting around you. And I think it has something to do with, ideally... I'm knocking on wood. In your adult life, there are other things you have control over. You have control over oh. your income stream. You have control over where you live. You have friends who maintain and support you. Obviously, these are all ideal. Yeah, scenarios. you have control of like being able to go out <laughs> when we were allowed to. Um, <laughs> you have agency in your own life. Totally. In the way that when you're a teenager, So many of your choices are made for you. Yeah. And you give away so much agency when you fall in love with somebody. And so you're you're giving ground you don't have to give. (laughs) (laughs) That's totally true. I think it's also because we just don't have the tools to work through it yet. Like that's, I think you really need to get your heart broken when you're, when you're a teenager because... It kind of emotionally stunts you if you don't. Like I have friends who didn't, you know, get broken up with until they were in their 20s. And they went through this like kind of weird lapse where it's like, well, how do I date now? You know, because emotionally other people have kind of matured and you're still 14. This goes back to the conversation, sort of, that conversation we were having about divorce in the at the top of the episode. Totally. Which is if you... If all of your emotional intelligence is bound up in one other person Mm -hmm. that you get married to before all this development happens, yeah, it can get gnarly. Yeah. I'm also not saying that if you've married the person that you've only and always been with, that that can't work either. We both know multiple people for whom that is true. Alan and Lisa, too. Alan and Lisa, too. Right, right, right. Hi, friends. So, hello. (laughs) Um... But I do think that I think that it's good to get your heart broken when you're a teen because then you learn how to self-soothe when you're an adult. And you learn that like it does the world does keep spinning. Yeah, you just have the tools to like move on and like reheal yourself. 
Can I tell you something my dad said to me once when I was 17? You've told me this, but you can tell our listeners. I love this story. I was heartbroken. What's her name? I'm going to take my hoops out right now. (laughs) Hold me back. And I just, I was in the state that you were describing where I was just inconsolable. I felt like I will never come back from this. Also, you and I are both like hard feelers. Romanticos. We really feel. And, (laughs) And my dad came into my room and I was looking mournfully out the window and it was nighttime and he said, you know, the sun will come up tomorrow. And I know that sounds so cliche, but it was what I needed to hear in that moment. And it didn't occur to me until much later that that was something that he, for reasons that are documented in the podcast Family Ghost, (laughs) had had cause to learn to say that to himself. Mm. It was such a gift. That's like such, knowing your dad, that's exactly what he would say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is like, he wouldn't sit down and give you like this long, whatever, just one simple little. It was a real Ruth Fisher move. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. In the vein of, it's amazing the different people we become or whatever Mm. that line was. Simple wisdom. Simple wisdom. Well, friends, I am looking at my list here. Oh, I know what else I wanted to ask you about. This can be the last thing. Okay. I loved when you pointed out when David and Keith are hanging out after the food drive mm-hmm. and they go and they stand outside the gallery. Yeah. And they sit down together. In unison. In unison. I loved that. That was such a beautiful observation. It was such a beautiful observation. And it. I know, I'm certain that it wasn't an accident. And it just put me in mind of the fact that, again, in a show that sometimes overwrites and hits things a little too hard, there wasn't even any dialogue to that. It was just a visual signifier of... They were once in unison. And in some ways. And in some ways still are. Still are, yeah. Yeah. There's this psychological term called the third person... And it's the third person in a relationship. It can be a friendship or it can be a romantic relationship. That that a third person is created out of the two. And that there is like a certain rhythm. And like people who are very intimate with each other move unconsciously in unison or like in a little bit of synchronicity. And they don't even notice it because they're too close, but like others can perceive it. And it's like your body almost, in that moment, their bodies kind of betrayed them because their bodies were so used to being next to each other. Which is so interesting too, because then they completely miss each other physically. Yes. In the next scene. Yeah. Oh, Keith, I want you back. I want you back. Well, stay tuned, Adrian Bain. You never know what's gonna happen next week. On On Fisher Family Family Ghosts. Other than the fact that I will say I did not remember this plot thing. God damn it. Folks, thank you, as always, for listening to our show. 
If you would like to be as cool as Tracy, yes, send us an email at ffg at walt.fm. That email address is also in the show notes. You can find it there. And you know what else you can find in the podcast player that you are using to listen to the, the sounds of our voices right now is two other shows mm-hmm. you might enjoy. Yeah. So I have another podcast called Strangers Abroad, and it is a narrative travel podcast. And I'm sure all of you, after being cooped up for 11 months and it being February, would love some stories about being in faraway lands. And, you know, it doesn't hurt your eyes because you're not staring at a screen. So check out Strangers Abroad. It's a lot of my personal travel stories, other people's personal travel stories. And I would love to know, where do you want to travel when you can get the hell out of Dodge? What if somebody's response to that question is, I want to go to Dodge? Happy for them. If you are interested in the non-fictional narratives of families like the Fishers, the secrets they keep, you could listen to my other show, which is called Family Ghosts. Please listen to Family Ghosts. It is a labor of great love. And I humbly think that if you like the kind of storytelling that happens on Six Feet Under, you will dig it. Dig it. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening.